of your own service. And see, we have uh, some other visitors here. Is it uh, the, the Clint family? Is it? Fordham family. Okay. <laughs> We're glad to have you all. We hope you all feel welcome and uh, feel a part, feel, feel welcome here, part of the family. I want to share with you this morning from Gospel of Matthew and um, I want to reconnect two things that have often been separated because they, um, they go together. And to fully understand the one, you need to be aware of what was happening with the other. The two things I want to connect together is the baptism of Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Matthew tells us going to see how it um, corresponds with what happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, and we'll make an application to us today in the present. So that's where we're headed this morning. So often, because of the chapter divisions and the uh, paragraph titles and things that we have in our scripture, we look at these two things, the baptism of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness, as two separate events. You know, as well as I know, that our, life, our lives are not like that, are they? It's not compartmentalized and analyzed one event and, uh, and separation from everything else. Because we're a whole people, we're complete people. What affects us physically affects us mentally, emotionally. Um, what affects us emotionally affects us physically, mentally, and so on. So we're, we're a whole people, and we can't compartmentalize our, our lives like that. And the life of Jesus wasn't that way either. So what happened was when Jesus was about to begin his public ministry, he went down to the Jordan River where John the Baptist had been baptizing people for repentance from their sins. It was a radical, revolutionary thing. Something like that had not occurred for 400 years in Israel. Um, with the close of the Old Testament uh, prophecies, there was a period of about 400 years that was relatively quiet as far as any fresh revelations, any fresh powerful word from God. There weren't a lot of prophets during that time. But just before the coming of Christ, uh, God called, anointed, and sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for him. And John's coming was like a step out of the Old Testament, coming in and preparing the hearts of people to receive the good news, the message of what God was doing in their contemporary society by revealing His Son. And so that's part of what was going on here. Jesus comes and John's baptizing people for the repentance of sins, confession, repentance of their sins, um, wanting to make a difference, a change in their life, a switch in the focus and the direction in which they were going. It involved a total change in lifestyle for some. Didn't mean they left their jobs, didn't mean that. But it meant that inside how they looked at things, how they thought about things, how they spoke of things, how they interacted with people and things around them changed um, from within. And so this change came not because someone told them that they had to or not because the law demanded it, but it changed because there was an inner hunger and a desire for that change to take place. They knew the emptiness inside and there was a longing for something more, something that would complete and fulfill their lives. 
And so God spoke, and he, as he always does, into hearts that are hungry and open. So John came preaching this re- baptism of repentance. And as you know from the Gospel of John, that uh, when Jesus came that day, the Holy Spirit spoke directly and powerfully to John, and he said, this man is the reason that you're here. This man is the reason that I've sent you to prepare for his coming. And this is what it means. And Jesus and John looked at Jesus and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. And that's why he's come. So when Jesus went in to the water, John baptized him. And when Jesus came out of the water, it says... Immediately the heavens were opened. Mark says the heavens were torn apart and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a, like a dove and coming to rest on him. And there was a voice that came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So God sends John to be the forerunner and then God himself, the Father, speaks so that people will know this is my Son and I am well pleased with what he's doing. So it was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And as you read the Old Testament, one of the things that took place was there was a cleansing and a washing that took place for the priest before they entered into their ministry. And so he was preparing himself, body, soul, spirit, to begin the great work for which he had come, to take upon himself the sins of the world. And God himself, as he always does, bears witness to his son. And so we look at that and we think, man, that was a powerful thing. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And, and we separate that as a separate unit. But that's not the way it was. He came up out of the water and he was filled. The Holy Spirit came upon him in bodily form. He has the witness of God the Father, a spoken word, definitive and correct. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the first thing that happens is that Jesus, Luke says, full of the Spirit, was led into the wilderness. Mark says the Spirit drove him, compelled him to go. Why did he do that? If you've ever accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior... Sometimes it's a dramatic thing. Sometimes it's an event that takes place and you're filled with a sense of his presence. Um, You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his blood has been applied to your life. Your sins have been forgiven. The guilt, the shame, the fear, the doubts have been lifted. And man, things are different for a while. Isn't it? For a while. Then after a while, uh, you know, Life goes on, and difficulties are still there, and the problems, uh, you can't run from those things, and life is hard for a lot of people. Bad things still happen to good people. And so we're, we're immediately, uh, we're faced with all these temptations. And then the voice of the, of the devil comes, and he starts asking us, you know, was that really real? What happened to you? Is it going to last? Or... You really have that assurance and that peace in your heart now, right? 
So there Jesus is. He's going through these things for himself, but also on our behalf. Now, one of the things that is it's just a fact, whenever God speaks and whenever God acts and whenever he is at work, uh, that work, that word is going to be challenged and it's going to be put to the test. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's where faith begins to grow, isn't it? Amen. That's where we, we have to make choices. We believe the word of God or we believe the voice of the tempter or the voice of the world or the voice of our own inner failings and weaknesses comes through and it's loud and it's persistent. And so we find that in the Garden of, of Eden, um, we've got the temptation taking place. And so we don't, uh, as James says, writes to the church and he says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that you're facing as a Christian person. Don't think it's weird or out of the ordinary. It's a normal thing. Even in the Garden of Eden, where everything was perfect, I mean, everything was perfect, including the people that God had placed there. They were created in the image and likeness of God, and they were like Him. They were clean and holy. Didn't have a sin nature in them. Unblemished, unsullied. But there was a serpent in the garden. And there always is. And what he does, first thing he does, is he challenges the Word of God. That's what he does. He creates a doubt or a fear within us concerning the Word of God. Is it real? Will it last? Is it effective? Am I being foolish? And he tries to tell us we are foolish. He is the father of lies. And we look at what took place in the Garden of Eden and we see Jesus coming down as God's Son to take these things upon Himself and to correct the abuse, to make the cleansing, um, to reorient our lives where it was created to be. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is compelled to go out into the desert of Judea. It's a pretty desolate place out there. There are parts of it, if you've ever been there, you go down south uh, toward Masada, it looks like the moon, literally. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. There is nothing out there, and it is desolate. And in the Garden of Eden, they had plenty. All these trees, and all of them were bearing fruit. There was plenty. Jesus is going 40 days without food, and um, what happens is you get weak, and you're vulnerable, and things begin to break down after that long of a time. In the Garden of Eden, it was a beautiful place, a place of quiet and peace and beauty. In the desert, it's a different story. There's a beauty of, in the desert itself, but not like in the garden. And it's a harsh, unforgiving place in the desert. And the desert, the place of trial and temptation, that's when what is inside us comes out. And we know, we begin to know deep within ourselves, we're separated from all the distractions, all the noise, all the things that would pull us away and keep us from facing who we are as a person. And then we're alone in the desert and you're just there with yourself. And that's true of life. We can change everything about us. We can change our dress. We can change our looks. We can change our job. We can change our friends. We can change our location. We can change our partners. We can change whatever we want. But everywhere you go, there you are. 
That's what I found. Everywhere I went, there I was. And I could run from a lot of things, but I couldn't run from myself. And that's a devastating thing. In the Garden of Eden, it was a place of peace. And Jesus was in a sinful, hostile world that was filled with enemies. In the Garden, they had everything in their favor, and they fell. In the desert, there was nothing in Jesus' favor, and he was faithful. And that's the difference. And so because he was faithful... It gives us hope. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So that's hope and a promise for us because of what Christ has done. So what's going on with all of this? Hebrews continues in chapter 5 verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So how are you and I going to learn obedience? As God's sons and daughters, it's going to be the same way. Putting our faith to the test. Because faith's like a muscle. If you don't use it, it will atrophy. It will deteriorate. And you will lose the ability that you once had uh, simply through neglect. And oftentimes, that's what happens in our walk with the Lord, isn't it? It's not that we've intentionally gone out and committed some great horrendous sin. It's just that we kind of let, let things slide, let things drift. And we find ourselves waking up and finding ourselves far, far from the Lord, something which we never intended. So Jesus, Son of God, learned obedience through what He suffered. And so James, chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, he addresses that. And so he's talking to the church, and James is one of the general epistles, one of the church uh, letters written to the church as a whole. Uh, wherever they were, you're supposed to read it and pass it on to the next church. And he says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, he includes sisters there too, um, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, that's endurance, or maturity, or completeness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that's as for our growth, for our maturity, for our spiritual development. And it's a necessary thing. So he continues, James does, and he, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So one of the first things that's going to happen in the temptation is the word of God is going to be challenged. And so in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes and he begins to question the word of God, and he ends with a flat-out denial. What God said to you is not true. It will not happen. And he gives them the promise of a greater fulfillment. Now, what greater fulfillment can you have than to be made in the image and likeness of God? And he promised them a lie. 
If you eat the fruit of this tree, if you indulge in this sin, you will be a more complete person. Matter of fact, you'll be equal to God. Well, they were already like God, made in His image. And so that, then they had a choice. Um, and so there were three reasons why Eve ate. Good for food, pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable to make you wise. But if you go back and read Genesis chapter 2, you find out that every tree in the garden was beautiful. And every tree in the garden was bearing fruit that was good to eat. So that leaves wisdom. So what should they have done? Were they ever going to grow in wisdom? Well, James tells us, if you lack wisdom, all you have to do is ask God. And God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. All you had to do was ask. Without the sin, without the shame, without the guilt, without the fear, without the hatred, without the bitterness, without all of that stuff. It didn't have to be that way. And it doesn't have to be that way for you or me either. We can lay those things down. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. Now James continues in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And what was the two trees in the middle of the garden? One was the knowledge of good and evil. The other was the tree of life. James is telling us, if we remain faithful, steadfast, if we endure through the temptations, which God in his mercy gives us the grace to do, the result is life, eternal life, life that's full, life that's without regret, life that's filled with hope and a purpose. So that's just the opposite of the consequences in the garden, isn't it? But because Christ was obedient and because he was sinless and because he really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, his death on the cross and his resurrection means that the power, the force, the compelling drive of sin can be broken in your life and mine. That's why he died and that's why he rose again. He didn't die for his sins. He didn't have any. He died for yours and he died for mine. So immediately in the book of James, right after he gives the promise, he goes into this thing about temptation. Just like Matthew, just like Luke, just like Genesis. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And he goes on and says, we're tempted by the sin that's within us. And that's the power that Jesus came to break. So let's look at the temptations of Jesus quickly here. He was led to that place of testing and trial, driven, compelled to go by the Holy Spirit. And there's a reason for that. It's because as long as you and I live in a sinful world, there is no way that we're going to escape being tempted and challenged. So the tempter comes 
And the first two temptations, he makes it really clear. Remember, Jesus just coming out of the water. Heaven's torn open. Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove. He hears the voice of God. This is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. And the first thing the tempter says after the 40 days of temptation, and I think these three are just, it's like a summary I don't think there was 40 days of peace and quiet and then the temptation came. I think this is telling us, he's summarizing and putting it in encapsulated form. These are the areas which he was being tempted during this 40-day period. And so the first thing he says is, if, if you are the Son of God, then prove it. Right? What did God say? You are my beloved Son. I'm well pleased. So a direct challenge, just like in the Garden of, Ge- of, uh, uh, Garden of Eden. I'll get there in a minute. So uh, Garden of Eden, by the way, means delight, delightful. It's beautiful, great place to be. And they were barred from that by their sin and compelled to leave. So the first thing that happens in Eden is the devil challenges God's word. And that's what he does here. If you are the Son of God. And that's the way he does with us too, right? After we've accepted the Lord and the temptations come and you think, is that real? Is there really a lasting change in my life? Did that really happen? Did God bear witness to your spirit that you've been born again? Has he borne witness to you that you are his child, his son, his daughter? If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And so the first attack is a challenge to what is the basis, the foundation of your life? What is the source of your life, your strength, your hope? Is it physical or is it spiritual? Oftentimes before Jesus healed people, he would tell them that their sins were forgiven and then he would heal the body. Um, What he was telling them is there's a more important healing that needs to take place. Um, The body eventually will wear out and die and pass away. But the spirit, the soul, is eternal. So that's the one that needs to be. But we focus in on the body, on the the lust of the flesh, or the needs, the desires. And those are legitimate desires and, and needs. It's not the desire itself that's wrong. It's when they control our life and take over that it becomes a sinful thing. Um. Nothing wrong with food, is there? Yeah. Or, and if you only feed the, the, the body, and that, if that becomes your God, then you're in trouble. So it's a, a matter of what's the foundation of your life. And the temptation is to, to focus in on the physical, on the, the five senses, and what feels good or what seems right, those kinds of things. And... Jesus answers from the scripture again, from Deuteronomy 8.3, it's not by bread alone that you live, it's by the word of God that we live. It's by the word of God that he created everything that there is. It's by the word of God that we are created anew and afresh through the living Christ. It's through the word of God that we have hope and a promise. And so out of nothing, he can create a universe. And out of the emptiness and the nothingness within us, he can create a life that's pleasing to God. So where's the focus of your life? 
The second thing is the devil took him to a holy city, to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And the, um, the, the temple, there's a cliff right beside it. And it's a long ways down. So he's on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, if, again the challenge, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for, and now he's quoting from Psalm 91. So the devil knows the scripture. It's not enough just to read it. It's not enough to have it memorized. If you don't live it, it doesn't mean anything. So he comes along and he says, Scripture says, Word of God, throw yourself off. He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. If you are God's son, really prove it. Give us a sign. It's the issues of doubt and unbelief. And so this is the challenge, isn't it? Now the point of all of this is a very simple one. If you know who you are in the sight of God, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You're free to walk with the Lord in peace and certainty and hope. And this is why um, Peter says, as a Christian, you need to be ready to give a, a reason to anyone who asks for the hope that lies within you. Because if you're walking in this way, people will ask you. You don't have to search them out. They'll look for you. In the grocery store, the post office, uh, out on the street, they'll find you and they'll ask you. Jesus answers again from Deuteronomy. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is a reference back to Exodus 17, 1 through 7. They had just come out of Egypt and they hadn't made it to Mount Sinai yet. And they were concerned about the food. And they said, well, God's led us out here and deserted us and left us here. And so they asked the question, is the Lord among us or not? Now, they had been in Egypt as slaves. They had witnessed the ten plagues. They had been brought out. They had been chased by an army. These were, were not military people. And they had their backs against the sea. And this, he was coming with, the, with, in our days, it would be the tanks and the planes, you know. Um, they had the greatest military, one of the greatest military forces of that day. And they were coming. And uh, God delivered them from that. They saw the sea parted. It says they walked on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And when they got to the other side and the enemies came in, God closed it again and destroyed that whole army. They were being led by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And they were asking, is God with us or not? We can point fingers, but we need to be careful, don't we? As a Christian, when things are getting tough, when there's no money and there's no job, when you've got kids that are sick or hungry and uh, you don't know where you're going to go, um, when you're all alone and there's no one around to help and you're isolated and under attack, what kind of question comes? Is the Lord with me or not? And so Jesus is saying, you don't put the Lord to your test. You put your eyes upon him and you go forward. Third test came. 
The devil took him to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Luke says that Satan said, all of these I will give to you because it's mine to give. And Jesus did not challenge that statement. Because when Adam and Eve sinned as God's representatives on the earth, they handed the world and everything in it over to him. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 8. This is why all creation is groaning and travail, waiting for the sons of God to take their rightful place. Because when people are right with God, people in God's image and likeness are walking and doing what God wanted them to do, then all the rest of creation is under a blessing and the curse is removed. And so, the challenge is, if you will bow down and worship me. Now what that means is, who do you serve? What is your belief and practice? We can go the easy way, the way that leads to glory and fame, and there's no suffering here. And there's no Gethsemane and no Golgotha there. All you have to do is bow down to me. Where are you going to orient your life around? Now in Psalm 2, one of the great messianic psalms, repeated many, many times in the New Testament, God speaks to his son and he says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. God speaking to his son. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. So who are you going to ask? Going to ask the devil, the easy way? Or are you going to ask the Lord, who is the sure way? Jesus answered again from Deuteronomy, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And Luke says he left him until a more opportune time. He didn't go very far, as he never goes far from us. But, you know, back in the book of James, when he's talking to the church, and he's going to be telling us that if we will resist the devil he will flee from us in James chapter 4 verse 7 submit yourselves therefore to God in other words receive and accept God's word humble yourself before him resist the devil and he will flee from you draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you now Peter says the same thing he says exactly the same thing If you resist the devil, then he will flee from you. And this is what took place in the desert. Jesus resisted with the word of God, through prayer, through fasting, seeking after the Lord, and he left him. He fled. Luke says, chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus returned from the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it's an important verse for us, Uh, verse 13. This was uh, one of the verses that I took 
to help me as when I first accepted the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Same word that um, James talks about. One of the reasons that our faith is challenged is to build this endurance. And so Jesus Himself gives us a promise. Number one, temptations you face are just like the temptations everybody else faces you. Because the devil likes to feel, make you feel isolated and say, man, nobody's tempted like this. Well, yeah, like everybody. And God gave a promise that you won't be tempted beyond your ability, that's your ability to say no to. Sometimes we have a disagreement with God about our abilities. <laughs> We're a lot stronger than we think. Really are. You'll, you'll never know it till it's challenged. You'll never know it till it's challenged. And he'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure, to grow, develop, become more mature because of it, become stronger. Notice the very next verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, because God has promised and he's faithful, flee from idolatry. What's the first letter of the word idolatry? I. That's where it starts. And that's where most idolatry centers. And so you don't look to yourself or in your own strength um, or to your own successes in the past because the beginning of this in verse 12, if you think you stand, be careful lest you fall. And so oftentimes, right after the greatest victories, spiritual victories, is the greatest hour of temptation that we face. And again, the middle letter of the word pride is what? Middle letter, I. And that's what comes through the spiritual victories. It's a victory given by the grace and mercy and blood of Christ, and we think it's something that we did. Look at me. Instead of thank you, Jesus. So it's the maturity, the idolatry that we need to run from. So the book of Revelation tells us the saints were, are, and still continue to be overcomers of temptation through the blood of the Lamb, through the word of their testimony, and by not loving their lives so much as to shrink from death. What that means is not my will, but yours be done. And then you get up and live it. Without the living it out, it's just words. And they're empty unless you live it out. So the word is supposed to become flesh in us. And that's what Jesus died to, did, to give. In our church, we have communion every Sunday. It's a reminder for us and an opportunity for us to stop and take stock of what's going on with us and how we've been walking with the Lord. Individually, we should be doing this daily. But corporately as a church, we do it every Sunday. 
And everyone is welcome here. Um, this means that our church believes in open communion. All the people in that upper room, except for Jesus, were sinners on that night. Every one of them. And every one of them either betrayed, denied, or ran away from their commitments, just like us. And yet Jesus was saying, this is for you. And he still says that. So if you're a visitor here, you're welcome to participate. Um, the invitation is from the Lord, but as a church, we offer our invitation as well. You are welcome here if you want to. Again, there's no compulsion here, so if you feel uncomfortable with that, that's not a problem. But if you want to participate, you are welcome here. Also, we'll have uh, someone over here in this corner. If there's something that you want someone to pray with you about, they will be there to pray with you about anything that you want. And so that's an option for you as well. So we come because of the sacrifice of Christ and what he's done for us. His death on the cross, defeated, broke, gives us the ability to resist the temptations and the accusations and the doubts and the fears that are around us. And it's a message of hope and promise and cleansing and if we come before the Lord and meet Him here, it becomes effective. So it's what we bring with us and what we are expecting to find when we get here that are the significant things. Christ is here. He's here for us. He will meet us here. It's how we come, whether we receive or not. So this is because, through the grace and mercy of God, Jesus, on the night that He, he was betrayed, He took bread and after he broke it, after he gave thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, Each of you, take, eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. After he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, Each of you, drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you and for many. It's for the forgiveness of sins. The sins that we have committed and the sins that others have committed against us. And you can't have one without the other. Forgiveness is an all-inclusive thing. To receive, we must be willing to give. And Jesus died to make it a reality in our hearts and lives. So will those who are serving communion please come forward?